the Tom Sumner Program. Old Fashioned Radio for a New Generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. W.H. Weiskarper, a recent guest on the show, has pledged 50% of the proceeds from his book Twilight of Empire from sales between October 1st and October 31st to support the Tom Sumner program. W.H. Weiskarper, a former National Security Advisor and counsel for the U.S. Senate Armed Services Committee, pulls no punches, fusing history with political intrigue in Twilight of Empire, the third of four planned novels in the Resurrection Saga series. W.H. Carver's book, Twilight of Empire, shows that the U.S. has all the wealth, science, and resources to solve every issue we face today. Twilight of Empire by W.H. Weiscarver is available on Amazon and Apple Books. For more information and to support the Tom Sumner program, visit whyscarver.com. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, welcome back to uh, part two of this week's edition of Armchair Politics, our weekly roundtable on the Tom Sumner program. Joining me for today's edition of Armchair Politics, our panel of uh, political pundits includes our roundtable regulars on the left, Flint's premier political pundit, Paul Rosicki. Paul, welcome back. Always good to be here. On the right, longtime Genesee County Republican, Henry Hatter. Uh, Henry, welcome back to you as well. Thank you, Tom. And joining us this week, former high-ranking official from two presidential administrations, Mark Everson. Mark, welcome back, and it's always great to have you here. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, GOP lawmakers in the Michigan Senate made sweeping changes Wednesday to a bill originally focused on implementing a strict voter ID requirement, subbing in a new version that adds restrictions on funding for elections and a ban against election officials sending absentee ballot applications unless voters specifically request one. Democratic lawmakers blasted the bill, calling it voter suppression and criticizing Republicans for not sharing the new version until shortly before the vote. How is direct mailing absentee ballot applications not merely a way to encourage voting? 
Oh, I think it is a way to encourage voting. It reminds people there's an election coming up. Yeah. Um, and that that may be if may have been a factor in 2020 when we did see a boost in the voting, is that there were more of those things done. But yeah, it does remind voters to get out there and vote in a way that, that some other things may not. <clears throat> but I think Republicans look at that as extremely risky. Those uh, <clears throat> those forms falls into the fall into the hands of the wrong people. You know, yeah, but these things, but these things abusive. are just simply a way of mailing to all all registered voters an opportunity to apply for an absentee ballot. It's not the absentee ballot itself. Right. In fact, I've received those from candidates period over the yeah. years. Every yeah, time candidates I receive them. Yeah. I don't see anything wrong with them, but and I haven't had the experience of. Uh, of identifying and recognizing where the abuses are in this process. So I can't go any further than that. I have to rely on other people who are more knowledgeable about it than I am. But I see nothing wrong with that. But it's yeah. the abuse, yeah. abuses into which the Republican Party are, <clears throat> are hoping that we can resolve. You know, as I mentioned before, I've just voted absentee for the first time in the last year or so, and I've become a fan of it only because I think it really makes for more informed voters. It gives voters a chance to study the ballot, to learn the candidates, to read on the proposals and in a way that they might not otherwise do when they walk in cold turkey to a, to a voting booth on Election Day. So I think it not only does it give you a paper ballot to fall back on, but I think it can, can give you a, a much more informed electorate where voters can learn, you know, you know who their township supervisor is or who's on the the school board and things like that that they might not pay attention to when they walk in and plan to vote for governor or for president or things of that nature. But so I I, so I think it's it's a good idea in many ways. But Paul, you know, back when I was chairman of the Republican Party, we always formed public who went out and advanced and looked at who was on the ballot. Those yeah. are the things that the informed public did. Today, the public appear to be uninformed, not because there's oppression by the <laughs> bureaucracy, but because they don't have the will. And there's or, a thousand other... <clears throat> no, I think you're yeah. exactly right. I, but, you know, for, for those of us who are kind of political junkies, yeah, we follow that stuff. But for, for the so-called average voter, <laughs> yeah, they, they know who they're going to vote for for president. They know who they like for governor, maybe, and maybe the senator. But they haven't got the slightest idea who's on the Mott Board of Trustees or who's on their, their township board or uh, things of that nature that are also on the ballot. And then they see a, a three-paragraph proposal on some millage or bond <laughs> issue, and they skim it and quickly try and decide whether they like the idea or not. But as I say, if they have the time, they could, uh, you know, get the ballot ahead of time and actually learn what the proposals are really about and learn who's, who is, really is on their, on their school board or on their township board and, and make, I think, a more informed decision. So I, I think that's one advantage of an absentee ballot process. Let me just jump in there and challenge that just a little bit, Paul. Uh, I think what you're getting at informing the electorate is very important. But um, and so I, I've got no problem sending out those materials or even allowing people to to vote absentee um, by mail if there are proper you know protections and everything. 
But I, the one thing I want to say is one of the most remarkable things for me as a citizen is when I go to vote. And, and I am just struck. I live in a small town. And I just see people that are cashiers at the Lowe's or um, who are, uh, you know, teachers' assistants or bus mm-hmm. drivers. Or people, and it, it is one of the most uplifting moments. I agree with you. I could get online and see. It's just an amazing thing. So I don't, I don't want this to be another exercise that's done on some machine sitting at our kitchen table where we go. Oh, I don't have to look you and uh, look at you and say, "Yeah, I'm here to vote, and I'm I'm voting against the guy you like." But we're all part of the same mess. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I, I've always enjoyed the ritual of election day and talking to the poll workers and all of that kind of thing. And I say this. This past year is the first time I've ever voted absentee, and there really is a lot to be said for that public voting ritual that we go through. If I keep voting absentee, I'll see, but if I keep doing it, I'll do it so reluctantly because there's a lot to be said for that public, that public ritual. But I think you make a good point, Paul, when you talk about, um, you know, people who do exercise the mail-in option, how they have a little more time to spend with their ballot, and if there are things on it they don't know, they can research them a little bit. Uh, And I find that part, you know, very appealing. And it's, it's, it's because people don't try to get themselves informed without some... You know, without that worksheet, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, for that, say, for those of us who are kind of political junkies, we follow this stuff. But the average voter doesn't do that. They've got ten thousand other things to worry about. When Henry was talking about informed voters, I couldn't help thinking about the uh, the the old Mark Twain quote about uh, people that don't read a newspaper are uninformed, but the people who do are misinformed. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. I don't know where the answer is on this because you look at something like this whole California recall election and everything else. You can gin up through social media now and other things that are offline. And I'm not suggesting that absentee voting or voting by mail is offline, but you can drive things to to less accountability. It seems to me it's just a, it's a very delicate balance about how, what how you create enthusiasm. For something versus knowledge, if you if you know, and I don't have the answer here, but I am I am concerned that we're getting further and further out there. Well, let's move on. Uh, almost two <laughs> years uh, ago, before Tudor Dixon was a candidate for governor, she was the parent of a kid struggling in a West Michigan public middle school that felt big and intimidating. My daughter's shy, and she really suffered, said Dixon in an interview with M Live. After her daughter said she wanted to go to a local private school instead, we got some help from my parents. We made that decision to go to the private school, and I saw a complete change. She was happier. She was doing better at school. She had the resources to make that happen, but as a candidate for governor, she wants to make sure every kid has the same opportunity. Education is the top issue in Dixon's gubernatorial campaign, and a pillar of her plan is establishing an education savings account that allows a student's per-pupil funding to be used on public, private, charter, virtual, or homeschooling options. But a provision of the state's constitution prohibits spending public money uh, from going to private schools in most instances, so her plan calls for repealing that provision. 
Can she float a, a statewide campaign for governor on this platform? Hmm. Why not? Um, I'm not sure. <clears throat> you know, but you can, you can try it, but I'm not sure that's going to be enough to, to float a whole gubernatorial Yeah, campaign. that's not going to turn anything over, though. But, yeah. Uh, people who uh, send their kids to public schools, they pay most of the, <clears throat> both the uh, cost of operating the schools and its legacy cost. <clears throat> so uh, they're not going to want to take care of other people who don't pay into their fund. But everybody does, guys. Everybody does. Everybody pays the same amount of ta uh, taxes. But the schools, public schools, are designated primarily for people who send their kids to public schools. But then I don't, the sentiment in the state is not yet uh, available for them to overturn that and allow all kids to get an equal, fair, and credible education as the Constitution promises, that all kids should get an equal and equitable education um, within the state. And that's within every state. But somehow we just don't recognize private schools and, and uh, schools that don't, and religious schools that are not part of the uh, public education forum. And that's likely to be a fight for some years yet. It has been for a long time. Yeah, it's been a, almost a perennial battle. I, I think that this kind of goes back to what we talked about an hour ago about school boards. I don't think this it, it, this issue has been out there for so long, uh, you know, choice or whatever you call it. Um, I think that now that people on the right are saying, no, we're going to confront the public schools head on. We're not going to take our kids out and ask for money to be used on our kids being in the private schools. They're, they're make they're waging the fight right now on political correctness and, and what, what is going on in the different schools, uh, in the public schools. So I think to that degree, it takes away from some of the energy around this issue of private schools, if you will. Um, it may, may, that may not seem evident. You'd say there's more concern about public schools. So this ought to increase that. I don't think that's the case though. I think people are saying, no, we're going to have real conversations about fixing the public schools or at least protecting the way they operate. Well, of course, in Michigan, we have these charter schools, which are technically public schools, but right. operate notably differently. And I think that takes some of the heat off the issue for the private schools, because you can, people can always say, well, if you don't like the traditional public schools, you've always got the charters out there. Um, right. Part of Betsy DeVos's legacy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Hey, we have to take a uh, a break here, um, but uh, we've got lots more armchair politics coming up straight ahead. If you're listening to us on WFOV ninety two point one LPFM in Flint, WFOV Our Voices Radio is a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions, and my good friend Paul Herring. We're going to let them squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. More of Armchair Politics with our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter, joined by Mark Everson, will resume right after this.
Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom. This is my favorite interview always. You, you, <laughs> it's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed! It's a robocall! Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate, but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. 
Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Armchair Politics continues now on the Tom Sumner Program with our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter, joined by Mark Everson. Michigan tribal leaders say they feel confident as the U.S. Department of the Interior prepares to take the next step in its investigation into Native American boarding schools. The Department of the Interior announced in a press release on September 30th that it would begin tribal consultations as the next step of the Federal Indian Boarding School Initiative, a comprehensive review of the troubled legacy of federal boarding school policies. The dark history of Native American boarding schools was brought to light after over 600 bodies of indigenous children in unmarked graves were found at the site of what was once the Maryville uh, Indian Residential School in Canada this past June. Bodies of 215 indigenous children were found in Canada the month before at a location in Canloops, uh, northwest of Vancouver. This discovery prompted United States Department of Interior to launch its own investigation into American Indian boarding schools. Halland announced the Federal Boarding School Initiative directing the department under the supervision of Assistant Secretary for Indian Affairs Brian Newland to prepare a report detailing available historical records with an emphasis on cemeteries or potential burial sites relating to the Federal Boarding School program in preparation for future action. Chairperson for the Sault Ste. Marie Tribe of Chippewa Indians Aaron Payment said This will give Native communities the chance to properly grieve the more than 10,000 indigenous children he believes the Interior Department will find during the investigation. Why should this investigation be done by the U.S. federal government and not by tribal tribal leaders themselves? Hmm. Well, it is an application of federal law. You know, they're, they're, well... um, Reservations have certain uh, things that they can do. Again, you got to remember the federal law overrides the uh, local law, and, and they really should have the, something to do. With were that. the schools run by the federal government? That's what I don't know. I assume that was Probably the case. Not. They funded. It was funded, maybe. From the, I, yeah, I don't. Yeah. I don't. I think some of these are, pr- are private. I mean, I get funding solicitations from Indian schools out in Montana and stuff. Uh, so do I. And, yeah, same here. Yeah, and uh, I just think that this is a, a federal responsibility to get in there and see what's going on. Um, it, but it's, it, obviously the tribes, it's still, it's very few people understand the federal role in this. It's complicated and, and uh, it, it is worthy of being examined, so I'm not against this. It's just uh, it, it needs to be either. done correctly. It needs to be done correctly and 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 dispassionately to to move forward because it's easy to just sort of forget about the tribes, but the tribes are um, and the reservations rather are in in pretty tough shape in many instances. And they've been neglected too long. That's you true. Go and rectify some of the abuses to American Indians um, <clears throat> that we have not done over the past 
two or three, four hundred years from promises that the government made initially toward American Indians. So we need to go back and kind of clean that up in the indigenous um, day for celebration of America. Yeah, it's a start. And like I said, I don't know what it'll show, but it, it, it may not be pretty. It may not be. Yeah. And it probably will not, but, but we need to rectify or begin the process of it. We don't have to do all of this at once. We can do it steadily and uh, in a way that most people will agree with so well, that we don't tear ourselves to pieces over the process. It's nice to hear that uh, some of the, the tribal leaders um, seem to have confidence in the system and, and seem to yes. be welcoming the, uh, uh, the review or the investigation. Yeah. I just yeah. got an email response uh, <coughs> to an apology I had sent out this morning. I, I had somebody originally scheduled in the first hour of the show that uh, had had worked in the uh, U.S. Embassy in um, Riyadh for a number of years, and we were going to talk about his new book in, in Saudi Arabia. Anyway, I, I we had phone glitches, and we weren't able to make the connection. So I substituted. This is a, too long a story to, to get to what he said was. He, his response to my apology was, he says, as long as... You know, neither one of us ended up in the hospital or jail. No worries. <laughs> you know, we can, <laughs> we, we can reschedule. He said, my father always told me that. So if they're not complaining, then uh, I guess no worries. I guess that's true. Well, but I really like this. I like this uh, discussion you had on American Indians because that's so much a part of the everyday discussion that's quickly surfaced. Well, and, it, it should uh, be. It, it, it should be, and it shouldn't just be once a year. You know, I don't know that I would have noticed that story had it not just recently been Columbus Day and without the, right. you know, the, the little bit of controversy that surrounds it. Um, you know, these, these are things we should probably understand a little better as Americans. But we can't, we can't contribute the abuses to Columbus and should not. Uh, those are circumstances of a different kind. But this is negative no, from I, the American government. I think Columbus has enough problems with having discovered America while he was looking for the West Indies. <laughs> True. <laughs> well, President Joe Biden said Thursday that he has instructed the Justice Department to address rising violence on airplanes as passengers resisting mask requirements threaten airline staff. The comments came during a speech near Chicago where Biden was highlighting his administration's push toward COVID-19 vaccine requirements. Speaking in the direction of United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby, who joined Biden for the speech in Elk Grove Village, the president said, Scott, I want you to know I instructed the Justice Department to make sure that we deal with the violence on aircraft coming from those people who are taking issues. We're going to deal with that, the president added. Can air marshals play a role in enforcing air travel policies and encourage air travel manners? I think that's part of their responsibility to protect the safety and welfare of the people on that aircraft. 
And you would hope that just knowing that they're around would, would make some people yeah. at least have second thoughts before they punch out a, a stewardess or something. Yeah. And, and by the way, guys, this is an old issue. We've been going through this for a long time. I remember one of the first incidents I recall, <clears throat> and that was with a child. Uh, the lady had several kids, maybe three. And one of them, the youngest one, refused to put a mask on. And that created some controversy. And I think he was either kicked off at the next landing and couldn't continue her flight. Do you remember that story? Does anybody? No. no it's a We're supposed story. to be an informed group, guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, I've seen, Henry, I've seen several reports uh, in various media on television a great deal um, of incidents on aircraft with people who were being unruly about being asked to to wear a mask. And it seems like when everybody's got a cell phone to take videos, those things do make the news in a way they hadn't before. But yeah, it seems like every other day there's some incident on a plane where somebody gets into a shoving match about a mask or something else, and uh, it, it seems much more pronounced now than it was even a few years ago. Yes, and I, I never knew what kind of, what side I would be on uh, with respect to the lady who couldn't continue a flight because her youngest child, about two or three, refused to wear a mask. Because hmm. I don't think that you can make a child wear a mask. If it refuses not to put a mask on, what are you going to do to it? going to slap it well, around? Refuse the, it? Well, the one comment I want to make is... Um, we seem to be unleashing the Justice Department on everything here. Now, I think that passengers who, who are disruptive or physical, they should be arrested and they should spend the weekend in jail or whatever it is. Uh, but that can be a charge by New York State or some other place, I would imagine. Um, and, you know, just as we talked about this before, apparently Merrick Garland has uh, told the FBI to take a look at some of these disruptions in the school boards that we were talking about. We, we don't need to federalize every problem, even if, even if the problem does call for uh, prosecution or judicial action. It just, it, it, to me, it's, I'm not sure that I agree with, with getting DOJ involved in this, because um, that, that's, that's all I would say. Isn't yeah. there one airline that's stopped alcohol sales for the rest of the year on their, at least on the tourist ca tourist cabin? I think I've forgotten which airline it was, but I thought there was one major airline. I think, yeah, a big. It was a big, maybe American. <laughs> I Southwest, think, uh, yeah. I think it was. Yeah, I, I remember an incident there, but I and yeah. I could be wrong. They've but been, I remember they've been renamed thing. Prohibition Air. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you can overreact to this, too. And I'm not saying it's not a big problem, but you probably saw there was an incident about a plane flew into LaGuardia over the weekend, and they uh, they, they were concerned about a passenger and uh, thought he had a bomb. Or, and uh, turns out, nothing of the sort, but they had evacuated, slammed on the brakes of the plane and evacuated the plane with the, with the chutes and all this stuff and told everybody to run. And... Uh, this is a delicate balance. It's a very fine balance as to how you control yeah. how you control a plane and keep it safe. And uh, so you got to react when there's real issues. But I'm just not sure yeah. that the federal justice department is the right place to do it. Good idea. Good thought. Well, the Treasury Department sent a warning to Arizona's Republican governor Tuesday about the state's use of federal COVID-19 relief funds 
for grant programs that circumvent school mask requirements. Governor Doug Ducey announced over the summer that Arizona would use the federal money to increase the funding available to public school districts only if they're open for in-person learning and don't require children to wear masks. To be eligible for that grant funding totaling $163 million, Arizona school districts must um, must have opened for in-person learning as of August 27th and must be following all state laws, including the ban on school mask mandates that Ducey signed into law in uh, June. A separate grant program provides money for students who attend schools that require masks, allowing them to use it for educational or for education expenses like transportation and tuition costs at a different school. In a letter to Ducey on Tuesday, Deputy Treasury Secretary uh, Eddie Amo uh, expressed concern over the creation of those two programs, which are funded with relief dollars from the American Rescue Plan. Should there be restrictions or at least guidelines about the use of COVID relief funds? We talked about that last. Remember, I think I was we have to. Yeah, we we talked about that last yeah. last time we were here about many people going to be caught with their pants down using monies um, for uh, COVID monies for doing other things. And I'm sure I, Washington County I, out here in Genesee, yeah. next to Genesee County, <laughs> the county commissioners and, there. And that was one of the comments from the authorities at the conference that I, I was at a month ago, where they said, be cautious how you use COVID money, because that's going to be a target for uh, investigations uh, this year or next year. Yeah. My yeah, guess is this will be settled in the courts, and... I don't see how the federal government, unless if there's a federal law that says uh, that there should be use of masks, I, I that's one thing. But if there's no such no federal law doing that, and right now, remember the president has said everybody has to be vaccinated if you're a defense contractor. But if there's no federal requirement, I don't. I'm a little. I'm hard pressed to think that the federal government will win if it challenges a state that says. We want to use this money in this way uh, for something that's not prohibited under the law. If you if you follow what I'm saying, that's, that's I, I agree with you. I agree with you. That's how the law is written. That's, that's exactly yeah. true. Yeah. And and besides, a presidential proclamation cannot stand the the test uh, against a law that would be approved by Congress. All Correct. laws are corroborated by Congress. And while we're on this, let me just say, you know, I, as you guys know, I'm down in Mississippi, and, and a very significant piece of the uh, Jackson County where I live, it's on the coast, a very significant piece of the workforce, probably 20% or more, are defense contractors, and uh, because English shipbuilding is down here, and we've got other, other uh, naval-type uh, contractors, a lot of subcontractors to Ingalls, and uh, there is a real resistance on the part of many people to the president's um, vaccine mandate. And you're seeing it in the armed forces where the take-up rate is and what, what has been hoped for. It's, it's, it's going to be, in the next several weeks, a very large issue about what happens to these many, many people who are not agreeing to get vaccinated. I'm, I'm quite surprised by how high the numbers are. 
Yeah, it really is surprising. Even among healthcare officials and yeah. athlete, athletes, athletes, athletes. Yeah. So uh, we we know that they have they have made uh, mockery of the uh, regulations or whatever mandates that either the governor or the president is putting on that process without this being a law through Congress. You know what strikes me, Henry, and maybe Henry can answer this, and before the pandemic, when kids went to school, they were required to get a, a series of vaccinations, weren't they? And I, I, do, you, do you know how many vac vaccines were required for the average kid about to start school? Uh, uh, I, the, every child, yeah, you're right, and I think that's still the case. Yeah, I mean, my, my point is that, I that was I true. remember nobody, how many. Nobody blinked, nobody protested or... or no. Carried signs, and all of a sudden, now with this one extra vaccine, all of a sudden we're seeing all these protests all over the place. But they've been routine for the last half century for kids going to school, and, and a lot more than just one that I'm aware of uh, for, for kids to go into a public school. Now you know there's a, there's a striking difference, a stark difference between the presentation by Republicans and the presentation by Democrats. Now Democrats think that well, artificial vaccines that screen the laboratory we must take because it does appear to uh, mitigate the problem. But Republicans are saying, no, nature is the best part of immunity. And, and, and in these two schools of thought, there is this wide division in uh, what people believe and what they think and what they will accept. And we're about equally divided on this issue, and it's not likely to be settled right now. Yeah, like I say, what I'm saying is I, I've never heard this kind of stuff before with the other vaccines that kids are required to get. But no. all of a sudden now it's become so partisan and so politicized. But but it did not. Issue. But it did not start with COVID, though, Paul. There there has been a growing anti-vaccine yeah, movement that's true, over yes. the last yeah. couple of decades, really. Um, yeah. With you know, and and a lot of it is conspiracy, you know, theory stuff. You know that there are chips being injected into you so people, you know, Big Brother can track your movements and you know, yeah, all, know all of these other silly things. But what it has done is created um, just negativity toward vaccines. So a lot of people who maybe don't know very much about vaccines are just saying, I've heard bad things and, you know, I'm avoiding Right, right. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't see why in the United States where we had the best schools, the best opportunity, free education uh, of all kinds where everybody has access to it, we are still way behind in what we... And, how we use our education to improve the quality of life in this country uh, by the masses. And it, it appears as though there are people who would like not to take the vaccine. And if they do that, why not allow them to have choice in that? Uh, that's part of the question. But you know, the others say, well, you have no right to endanger me with uh, viruses that you walk around with or anybody else. So there's a really big discussion going on, and only uh, that would be resolved, if it ever is, 
by completely crushing one side or the other. Well, let me ask this. I, I had a couple other stories. I'm not going to have time to get them both in, but there is one that's sort of um, a little bit related to this uh, vaccine conversation, and that is how much of a role will pandemic leadership performance play in the races for governor next year? Hmm. That grew out of a challenge that's going on in Oklahoma, but it's going on in other states around the country as well. I think I think it'll be a hot button issue here in Michigan only because Governor Whitmer's been in the center of it so much. I mean, in the end, if, if she's successful, if the vac- if the pandemic is all but over, she can claim victory. If it's still going on and we're in the midst of more debates about masks and vaccines, she may pay the penalty. I think well, she had to make a decision one way or the other. Go ahead, Mark. and she thought, "I'm sorry." Yeah, go ahead, Mark. I just, I just think it'll be an issue across the country because, uh, yeah. you know, d- down here the governor has taken a lot of criticism. We, as we've said before, they we have the highest mortality rate in the country uh, in Mississippi, but he's taken the view of uh, keeping the state open and uh, you know erring on the side of uh, fewer restrictions and just the kinds of things we're talking about: individual liberty. We're not going to have the mandates for the mask, but. Um, there, uh, there's been a lot of criticism, uh, including signaling them out. The president signaled them out uh, uh, to criticize, and so mm. I do not that you're going to suddenly discipline a Republican governor in Mississippi, but I do think it's going to be an issue, right? Uh, uh, and and what's happened is you got three camps. You got the people who got vaccinated and followed all the rules and everything, and then you've had the people who are uh, hard over on the other side, saying, "I'm not going to ever do this." It's the people in the middle who now are getting vaccinated who were reluctant before or who are changing it. So I don't know where they're going to be in a year. It's a long time is what I would say, but it could be important. And and one other quick uh, question before we, we come up to break here. The Supreme Court justices uh, met in person for the first time since March 2020. They held oral arguments uh, person to person sat on the you know sat on the bench and all that and the question is will SCOTUS put technology aside as it returns to pre-pandemic session formats hmm. that's difficult to do I mean, they're a very traditional body they have been very traditional so i i don't know well america it's what americans uh, believe in and what they've come to accept and you know we got a generation only 10 years apart who will now run this country, and they are fully uh, technologized, if you can use that word. And that's what they, we can only escape it for uh, just a few years. But virtually, it will be the practice of custom. Well, before we go to break and uh, come back with uh, X-Files, the final segment on today's edition of Armchair Politics, I, I want to mention that, that Paul Rosicki has to step out early uh, for a, uh, a meeting he's got to get to. And, uh, yeah, the Mob College is starting its 100th anniversary celebration today. I've got, so I've got to leave 10 minutes early, but I wish everybody a, a good afternoon and a good evening. <laughs> well, I just wanted to make sure and, and say thanks uh, before, you, before you drop out and, and head to your meeting. Um, you know, it's always... Uh, you know, I always count on you to be here, and, and I appreciate it very much. Always great to be here. Always And is. give our best. 
to the folks that are celebrating this. I will do that. This, they're starting, they're, this, is, this is the kind of a kickoff for a, uh, maybe a two-year-long celebration. The look hey. events got going. <laughs> All this right. We'll be back. And guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now. And now. And now, too. And even now. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. The Tom Sumner Program is made possible with support from Seth David Radwell, a recent guest on the program and author of American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold a Secret to Healing Our Nation, released in July 2021. As Publishers Weekly writes in its recent glowing review of American Schism, business executive Radwell's epic debut examines the historical influences that have led to what he sees as the collapse of politics in the United States. Seth Radwell makes the case that the current chasm between the American right and left can be traced back to the 18th century's Age of Enlightenment and the basic tenets of liberty, equality, and reason. American Schism provides a historical perspective that can help bridge current day divides. American Schism by Seth David Radwell is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. For more information, go to AmericanSchismBook.com. 
MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. The uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. All the Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we uh, roll into the final segment of today's edition of Armchair Politics and the segment uh, we call the X-Files, looking at those weird and wacky stories that sometimes seem hard to believe. Well, a man fired a crossbow from a balcony into the street in the Netherlands on Friday in a dangerous and confusing event in which two people died and another victim was injured, police say. The suspect is now in custody. He was also injured. Police were initially called to the apartment building in the city of uh, El Milo uh, for a reported stabbing incident Friday morning. The two people who died were found inside the building. Local media outlet RTV reports... um, Police have released few details about what happened, saying their investigation is ongoing, but it seems clear that the situation escalated rapidly as a call for a stabbing turned into a brief standoff with police involving a crossbow. Last week we talked about a ninja with a sword attacking American soldiers, and now a man in the Netherlands is attacking law enforcement with a crossbow. Is medieval weaponry making a comeback? Yeah, I, I think what has happened here is that we want to inflict severe punishment on our victims. And the way to die, the worst way you can imagine, is in the old way because shooting them with guns is quick. Uh, so <laughs> using knives and bows are somewhat uh, more punishing. That's yeah, just bizarre. It's just um, it's 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 unfortunate, and uh, obviously there aren't the number of guns over there in the Netherlands, but uh, there's still uh, still violence. Well, there was a guy yeah. in California. We talked about this last week that uh, dressed up like a ninja, took a sword, and went after a platoon of GIs. Yeah, <laughs> it's just I don't know. Well, an Ohio dad whose kids missed a day of school because of a statewide bus driver shortage is helping neighborhood children get to and from school with a limousine. Sean Rogers Jr. of Columbus said his children missed school Friday when their bus never showed up to take them to Graham Elementary and Middle Schools. So he posted on Facebook to see if any other 
Local parents wanted their kids driven to school in a limousine borrowed from his father's limo service. Rogers said he soon received dozens of responses that led to his giving 25 kids a ride Monday, with the number increasing to 42 on Tuesday. Everybody always wants to say, let's help the community, let's stop this violence, that type of stuff. But I feel like a big step of, of stopping the violence is getting kids to school instead of letting them skip school and go out and get into trouble, Rogers told WYSX-TV. Bus driver shortages have been reported across Ohio, and Columbus City Schools Superintendent Talisa Dixon said at a Tuesday board meeting that 15 to 20 percent of the district's drivers called out nearly every day the previous week. Dixon said the district is looking into alternative transportation options. Will students learn better if they're driven to school in a limousine? Probably. But, you know, I'm I'm listening to you go through this litany of of explanations. But there's something extremely risky for that driver. Kids that age are always subject to abuses by adult males. And um, I would hope that he has a contract, something in writing from the parents, that gives these kids permission to write with him. And because the school boards all over the country advise other parents not to pick up kids without this kind of protection. Well, how does it? How, how does that play out with uh, the the soccer moms, the the carpoolers? Well, they all agree with that. Um, they they have meetings, but they have formal meetings where they can discuss uh, you, all of that. You guys are far more sophisticated up there, Henry. Uh, I I think the school bus drivers are heroes. We had a driver down here who um, he's been taking care of a girl for five years. She's like a fourth grader. He's had her since she was a kindergartner. She was chewing on something. She was a mile from home, and she almost died. Uh, and he did the Heimlich maneuver on her. And uh, to hear the treatment of this, uh, he pulled the bus over and stopped, stopped it and, and saved her life. And, uh, I, you know, this is it's not easy being a, a bus driver. And uh, I don't know if this, this fellow, albeit well-intentioned, Sort of undermined what what needs to be worked on. Uh, get the school yeah. buses should be safer and respected. Yes, uh, you're you're right, and I, I I don't I'm not challenging you at all. The, it's the buses that we entrust our kids to. <clears throat> but in this case, there have been cases, and we've all heard of those cases or incidents where the person who takes up this on his own needs to have certain protections for himself. He may not, he may be an honest guy, oh, but uh, there are other people well, that you can't characterize that way. Yeah, I don't want to demonize the guy who just took a bunch of kids from his neighborhood to school in one of his dad's limousines, but um, the, the real underlying problem was this was a reaction to the fact that uh, the whole transportation system has been disrupted in in part by covid um you know because there was you know basically a year off and and the system fell apart and they're having trouble getting it put back together again this is just one dad in ohio that said well for today we're going to have fun with it (laughs) i'm going to get a limousine and round up the the school district In response to that, the school district could commission this man to compete with the bus drivers. 
but he has to go through the the permitting process. And this also encourages school districts to look at other options that would eventually put drivers out of out of place. That's the uh, right. Yeah. Right. I've read other there are other school districts that are giving people cash stipends to take their kids to school. It can be very difficult, particularly if you have a you know a handicapped child who needs uh, special transportation and it takes extra time. And the school districts with a shortage of drivers, they have some real problems. So you're yeah. right. The system is fraying bad and badly. Yeah. So uh, we'll see how this comes out. This may <clears throat> start a whole new uh, um, industry where people compete with this, this kind of resources, like limousines and authority to drive, may be able to compete with school districts for that very reason. One, one more quick one uh, before we wrap things up. A British man broke a Guinness World Record when he built a riding lawnmower that reaches a speed of 143-plus miles per hour. Tony Edwards, a mechanical engineer from St. Martin, Shropshire, England, said he became interested in building the world's fastest lawnmower about two years ago. And there's more about uh, previous uh, record holders. But uh, my, my question was, can we measure progress by how fast we can mow the lawn? <laughs> that would be ideal. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, uh, since the lawns have boundaries, you have to you have some problems turning. Oh, you know, it was interesting. Um, in the process of building the lawnmower, uh, the Guinness World people said that they wouldn't consider it if it wasn't capable of mowing a lawn. Yeah, well, that's yeah. I'm trying to imagine the lawn he's got to, that you can get it. You know, from zero to sixty is one thing; from zero to 140 is another. I mean, my goodness. <laughs> oh, this that that still that that reminds me of the story we had a year or two ago about the the guy that got. Um, arrested for drunk driving um, because he rode uh, his his riding lawnmower up to the oh, local yeah. Walgreens or Rite Aid or something and and the, and cops uh, gave him a sobriety test and he he got arrested anyway that wraps it up for armchair politics and today's edition of armchair politics mark it's always such a pleasure when you can join us oh thank you tom Thank you, Mark. <clears throat> hey, Thank Paul, you, Henry. I, uh, I just like to say this. You know, um, Mark Everson is a man with the temperament of Job. I, I, I've <laughs> never seen someone that uh, uh, stands for in the balance other than Ken Horn, who is just like him. He never gets criticized you for being... You know, that's true. I, I wouldn't have thought of making that connection, but that's true. Um can you guys aren't family members i can tell <laughs> yeah <laughs> well we got to uh we've got to wrap it up there but uh henry thanks so much um, you're welcome i appreciate it we had Mark, fun. thank you and of course thanks to paul who had to step out a little bit earlier but that wraps it up for today i'll be back tomorrow with another edition of the show good night everybody the program is a live variety show We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. 
most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. And thanks for listening.